Hiya, welcome to the second part of our Christmas episode. I am here once again with Lloyd, wishing you all a happy Boxing Day or St. Stephen's Day. Is it the same in Canada? What do you call it? Canada has Boxing Day, but for our American audience, they have none of this. And so it's a traditional day after Christmas where rich people would put together boxes of their leftovers and give them to their servants, which is my understanding of where it came from. But nobody's ever quite sure. But anyhow, it's a holiday in Canada and Britain, not in the United States. But here we are. Anyway, right. ER, part two, as you... Go for a walk to get a little bit of personal respite or carry on with the Christmas labour. Or just whenever you happen to catch up with it, we don't expect you to be listening over Christmas. I just know I find myself consuming the podcasts while I cook. All right, so uh, hope you enjoy the second part. We certainly yes. did. Have a good holiday. You reminded me of something, which is that when I remember, one of the things that actually set me off down this path then this research path when we started looking into this article was um was maybe maybe five or six years ago maybe longer when mass timber started to become really in vogue and there was all these articles everywhere about you know let's you know this is this is the this is they were almost were saying this is the panacea to how we construct our cities in a in a low or zero or negative carbon way i saw various claims and people saying you know probably genuinely believing it maybe in some cases irresponsibly that it is better to put a tree into a building than it is to leave it in the forest because if you leave it in the forest, once the forest reaches maturity, it's going to stop absorbing carbon. It's going to essentially be saturated with carbon. Whereas if we take those trees out and put them in buildings and plant new trees, we're continually taking carbon from the biosphere and sequestering it in the technosphere, as as we call it. And that to me is, you're talking about honesty, that to me I thought was a, such a gross simplification um, and it struck me more as as marketing than science, you know, and um, that was one of the, I think, whether intentionally or not, kind of dishonest things that that set me off looking into into this subject. They're still doing exactly that. You still feel, see all the time, you know, all the wood that was used here, the forest will regrow in 12 minutes. And all kinds of statements like that are still going around. For well, the question is, what is, what, what is this useful? What does this, why is this a bad thing? I mean, is it just noise? Is it just people making a lot of noise and behind the scenes maybe doesn't matter? But I think it does matter, this, this issue of honesty. So in your book, you use this inverted um, pyramid, this hierarchy of net zero design pyramid. So if, if listeners imagine an upside down pyramid and then the top, I don't know, two thirds or something is one colour and you in there, you've got use less stuff. This is where all the big wins are in terms of everything we've been talking about, use less stuff. And then there's little bits at the bottom of the pyramid. There's, the pyramid is broken into three. So the bigger area is use less stuff. Then you've got specify low carbon. And then you've got offset a tiny little bit at the bottom, little triangle at the bottom. So by claiming buildings are carbon negative or carbon positive, depending on which particular PR company you're using, that is helping you to avoid, isn't it, using less stuff because it's easier not to because it requires a change in how we do things, possibly an aesthetic. You know, people who sell houses like the twiddly bits and the little dormer windows and, you know, whatever, stuff that gets bolted on because people just buy stuff easily that they think, oh, that's normal, we'll buy that. So it's a mass market thinking. So if you can get into this creative accounting and claim your buildings are, you know, somehow magic, you know, carbon suckers, 
you don't have to use less stuff. You don't have to do this thing where there's these massive wins. The thing is, though, you can get to a situation, and the housing market has this actually within it, where think about what some of the most desirable housing in in Ireland or England is. It's, you know, period, Edwardian, Victorian housing and so on, where people fetishize the the original materials that were used in, in, in the building. And they may be, may be in place for 100, 200 years. Now, there are problems with operational performance with them. But there's hope to be found in the sense that we already have, you know, the, in some cases, the pinnacles of consumption. Okay, it's, it's, it's you know, consumption of the purchasing of the property where you're not actually having to make anything other than uh, other than a commission for the for the estate agent you know and um, that's already there we have we, we can take inspiration there uh, for for mature examples of exactly this but what you're describing there is a status driven rather than a moral morally driven outcome which is i mean that is potentially useful so we we interviewed uh, Cedric Burgers of Burgers Architecture last week, uh, Vancouver-based architect. He does sort of grand designs, looking buildings, but with a much stronger sustainability consideration. And he's actually aware of the mistakes that he's made in the past, and he's endeavouring to do better through the process. You know, he's not one to rest on his laurels. He was, he was good crack, but he talked about how most design decisions, or sorry. The most costly decisions in the building of a new structure are often driven by the status that is conferred upon the commissioning person. So be that a kitchen, a driveway, a bathroom, furniture, whatever. But what he did describe is that amongst his client base, there is a new kind of status which is being acquired through the commissioning of a passive home. Now, an benefit would probably be better or like a, a passive house retrofit in whatever region would be better for the planet. But I reference that because it signals some kind of change which could further be exploited. I don't know how. It's still a young or juvenile market, but Jeff's point that he raises about how often some of the most opulent homes are the most uncomfortable. So for reasons that you just described, where they're, they're old and the the age and discomfort that comes with them is fetishized, or it could be uh, south facing double height. Uh, I don't think the discomfort windows. is fetishized. Do you? Do you? Uh, amongst some, uh, certainly our upper classes, you've heard of Gordonston. They sent oh, the yeah. poshest kids to the most expensive school yeah. in yeah. the deepest, darkest Scotland and make them oh, sleep oh, at night with the windows open. Not so the teachers can creep in, or sorry, not only so the teachers can creep in, but because it's it toughens them up. It's character building. But I think all of this, there is potential in it. And so to just to backtrack to Lenny's point for a moment, like the point about the tree being better off in the building than in the forest, there is a degree of truth to that if you present it honestly and in a trustworthy manner. So we had the the magnificent John Butler on the other week who talked about his concept of carbon buffering, which I think might be featuring in an article that you guys are all collaborating on or some of you are collaborating on. With John, yeah, that's right. So carbon buffering, it's not a solution, but it's kicking the can down the road in a productive manner. The carbon... Again, I, I think this is... You've mentioned the word solution again. I think I do find us all 
tending to keep get, slipping into that framework where we're trying to come up with a solution to a problem. So I think at the end of this article that me and Lenny wrote, what I've mainly taken away from it is that building in timber is something that we should we should be well we can continue to do but we have to be immensely respectful of the resource that it represents which is uh, ecosystems and some plantations in whatever proportion we end up doing it but we have to be extremely careful in how we use that resource so it can't be part of a market-led silver bullet you know big solution they don't think of it like that and we have to be extremely careful and imaginative. And, and people are leading the way in that frugal use of resources for beautifully designed buildings that are attracting quite a lot of attention and potentially status. But then, of course, we're talking a lot about new buildings and in the UK, differently in other countries, but existing buildings. You know, this is the biggest, you know, this is a big area in terms of like carbon reduction and improving basically crap houses. Uh, over you know the next 10 20 30 70 years so in many ways so, so the discussions about natural materials and timber use natural fiber use comes into retrofit but modified slightly by the fact that the the way we have to use these products and materials is a bit more challenged because of the existing you know damp walls and 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 and, and, and just bound, all sorts of complexities with existing buildings which makes it slightly more challenging to use natural materials but it can be done and they will play an important role but then at the same time we've got a decarbonizing electricity grid so the balance between what we have to do with materials versus what we can do with our heating electricity actually makes the problem a little bit easier certainly in the next 10 or 20 years so we've got a bit more room for maneuver and it's less about materials and slightly more about you know decarbonized heating energy and then we've got a little bit more time as we move towards potentially deeper retrofit where we must be using decarbonized materials well your new renovation standard includes this doesn't it that you had two levels in your standard one of which is a combination of heat pumpification and insulation and then there was the higher grade of standard what's your standard called so yes, so the, so the the, the ret there is a carbon light retrofit standard which is ultimately the deep you know what we call a deep retrofit. But there's a it's it's seen as a pathway so that you can begin your first stand your first step on that retrofit pathway um, would use a heat pump and we basically we're using the efficiency of a heat pump to do the heavy lifting in terms of carbon reduction and then just enough fabric fabric measures you know just enough insulation and air tightness plus ventilation which you should be improving every building with just enough fabric improvement to make sure the heat pump is efficient and, and affordable to run. But the principle is you mustn't block out potential improvements in the future to move towards a deeper retrofit. Now, maybe some of those buildings never go beyond that step one because they're, they're low carbon. The people in them may well be very happy with them. They might add a couple of other measures. They may never get to the deep retrofit. But as more and more people move off gas to electricity, then the peak winter heating loads could start impacting the grid quite severely because we need to be building more and more capacity in the grid. So maybe 20 years time or 10 years time, the government might say, God, we really need to, you know, minimise winter electricity demand. Let's incentivize deeper retrofit. So mm. that's the sort of thinking. And in terms of like the materials role in that, well, I suppose wood fibre is a classic example of an extremely useful material 
that works very well technically for a very large number of buildings where you actually do have to do internal wall insulation, for example. You need those, you need the performance of a material like light cellulose or, or wood fiber to work. So materials and energy working together, blah, blah, blah. Yep. I really like the idea as well. One of the things, Lloyd, that, that um, following that our this article being published, Andy and I, I were batting back and forth some ideas. I think we presented this in sim- simple terms. We never really fully developed this for like a hierarchy of of questions to ask with any construction project. Um, and you start with um, uh, you try and put it in the glibest, um, most dunderheaded way possible. But you know, so um, first question is um you know, with any construction project, do we need to build this thing? Do we need to build it this big? Or do we need to build it here? Uh stick kind of location. Do we need to build it this big? Uh do we need to build it out of these materials? Um and uh you know what's this and then it's stuff like what's the the smallest amount of the least polluting materials that we can use to build it for the most impact? You know, and it's it's I don't know how you put that into kind of articulate that into into uh, uh restrictions and kind of tar- you know requirements that people actually have to meet that they can't kind of could i throw a curveball in that i've been thinking about because we're we're playing i'm very cautious about ai very cautious indeed both in the sort of bigger picture stuff but also in how it actually performs when you use it for search engines and looking through documents and writing essays or whatever yeah, um, it's mainly garbage well <laughs> Yeah, what we're what we're doing at the moment is we've we've got a, a knowledge base on the ACB um, website as about six hundred very interesting papers about retrofit. You know, really interesting building science stuff, and so we're just seeing if we can train an AI to basically only look at that set of information. So they're not trawling off to some random sites on the internet. It's just looking at that, and we're going to see if we can train it so that the answers it when people ask questions. It gives you sensible answers without too much hallucinating, which is always amuses me that AI can hallucinate answers. Because potentially, it, so so the reason I mention that is because we can do calculations when when people are trying to make a decision about how do they design a building, what choices do they make with their materials when they're using on a retrofit. It's really complicated, and you you use your you use what knowledge you have. You might just apply basic principles. You might have sort of codified it a bit within the office, or you might be doing a, a, a certification scheme or something, but it's still laborious. And, and of course, it's always tempting, isn't it? Seductive to think that an AI that you can talk to, a chatbot trained in, you know, trained in good solid material will be able to help you talk through, or the client talk through what decisions to make. And it might be saying, well, we're going to use, you know, three cubic meters of wood fiber, um, you know, and we're trying to aim for this embodied carbon limit on on the project. And the AI will go, yeah, well, you already, you know, 50 percent, you've used 50 percent of your budget, you know. So that sort of interaction with with a chatbot could be, I don't know. That would be a dream. But for it to be accurate, it would have to be someone in East Asia or Kenya or somewhere and not really a bot, like a, a person powered bot. Because I, I attended a webinar, so like for the agency side of stuff that we do, trying to work out. Because I'm Alex is my business partner, so the Alex who, uh, who's a co-host, he he likes AI in principle. I think it's generally garbage because it doesn't do the things it's supposed to do. Google Maps is brilliant. I think the software that we use for editing this podcast amazing. Like all those sorts of things, I'm all in. But it's not magic. So this webinar, it was led like, how should agencies be approaching uh, AI and how should it affect their hiring? 
blah, blah, blah. It's led by three advocates, big believers. They loved it. They wouldn't hire anyone who wasn't uh, investing their spare time in learning how to use AI for their own benefit. Like that was their advice. I thought that was really interesting. But, but if, yeah, the biggest on. the biggest man in the room, he said, the thing about AI is if you want accuracy and precision, you you shouldn't use AI. Well, can I challenge you a bit on that? Because, you know, I when I'm trying to add something up, I'll I'll say, hey, Siri, can you, you know, give me do this sum or can you convert this? Now it's come up on my phone, stupid thing. Um, so so could an AI, uh, you know, like Tim Martell's PH ribbon, you know, basic carbon calculator, couldn't we just use it to automate the boring stuff to make it more accessible to designers working every day, trying to make decisions about, trying to work to targets where they're just sitting in the office, they can just chat to this this thing to do the basic calculations rather um, than expect magic. I don't expect magic from it, but what, what I'm saying is how do we um, – become more carbon literate without having to pay more consultants to do more sums and to slow projects down. So if you consider what it is, AI, it's just an algorithm. So an LL, a large language model, an LLM, it sifts through words and looks for statistical significance and reassembles the words based on prompts, based on its understanding of the st- statistical significance of those words in relation to the prompts that you've asked for. Yeah. I mean, that's a bit w- like what PH Ribbon does already, like except it's just pure numbers. But what you could do is you could ask uh, an AI chatbot to direct you to the research if you qualified that it was only to look within a narrow band of available information. But like, oh, you ask it to start, in inverted commas, thinking for itself. Like That's when you start inviting the hallucination. At all, but all I was asking for was it to do some calculations, you know, right. lookup table and calculations. If you tell it, I'm thinking, because, you know, you, you can you can estimate volumes of materials being used. I want to make a decision. And it just keeps saying, you, you know, you're 50% of the way to the budget, you're 100%. What do you think, Lloyd? You were trying to... Well, I was going to say just that I was asked by my editor at Green Building Advisor to write an article, Five Ways to Decarbonize Your House. And I thought, this is really boring. I'm going to ask ChatGPT to write it for me. And I started (laughs) off and listed the five things that it came up with, all of which but one were completely wrong, that it didn't understand the difference between carbon and energy, and it was doing energy-saving things. And it was just completely wrong because ChatGPT is based on information that's actually a few years old. And they don't, it doesn't understand in something as fast moving and quick changing as we're talking about the world of embodied carbon. I told my students this year for their exam uh, that I said, you know, you can use ChatGPT if you like, because everybody, I can't supposedly, we're not supposed to say no, but I'll be able to tell because it's just not up to date. Now, what you're talking about, Andy, which is just like sifting through your own documents and limiting to that is a very different thing. Oh, well, that's all I was going to say was yes. that I've yeah. been more successful at giving answers. I mean, I would, the the the, the limitation, which I can't see how to get over at the moment is if you ask a question as a professional, to uh, PDF chat or whatever, where it's just looking at a given document, however big that document is, you will get some answers. As an expert, you can go, okay, that's pretty good. That was a useful way of phrasing it or explaining it. Because as a language model, it can actually 
make it easier to get concepts across and you can choose several have another go have another go so it can be useful uh, but as but but i would never put that out to a general user because they wouldn't know what they were looking at whereas a, a prof- an expert using it to look at expert written material it's useful so that's a kind of caveat that yeah. you don't notice because it's so convincing as a language model people do use it and and I'm not discerning because they don't know the subjects. Well, you, meant, you mentioned the hallucination issue, Andy, and I, you can cut this out down if it's not relevant, but there's another podcast by a, an Irish uh, artist, you call him, called Blind Boy, very well-known pod- podcast. And he talked about using ChatGPT. Um, he has a, a real interest and obsession with um, with folklore. And uh, he had got this idea in his head. He was curious to know whether uh, snails were involved in Irish uh, folklore at all. So he asked ChatGPT if there was if if there's any instances of snails appearing in Irish folklore. And uh, ChatGPT said, "Yep, yeah. uh, there's a there's a creature called the Lushcon, which is like a kind of a snail that turns into a leprechaun, right?" So he was fascinated by this, and he went. Uh, he's delighted with ChatGPT, and went off doing his own digging on the basis of that, and couldn't find anything on Google. And uh, in the end, he contacted a, a friend of his who's a, a historian, uh, who is specifically a, 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 a historian focused on Irish mythology, and asked him about uh, Lushcons. He'd never, you know, he couldn't find them anywhere on on the internet. And dear man was like, nope, nope, never heard of it. <laughs> so he went back to ChatGPT and asked. What's the crack? <laughs> you told me about these loose cons, and I can't find them anywhere. And then the the software, I think there was a pregnant pause or something like that. And then the software basically came back and said, uh, "I'm sorry, uh, I made it up." <laughs> right, I read that. I read about that. <laughs> so that I inherently just mistrustful of the whole damn thing uh, on the basis of that. You know, I have heard of it being relatively successful in terms of uh, not chat GPT specifically, but using AI software or that sort of soft machine learning software to yeah. uh, absorb. Uh, so my cousin, he has an agency that we work with sometimes in Sydney, a healthcare focused agency, they're digital, they build things, they invest a lot in innovation. And during, I think the the various lockdowns, I think theirs were a lot more stringent down under, they uh, they built an Alexa program that enabled physicians to ask Alexa on their desktops to find them the latest COVID-related research. Hmm. So they would have a specific question, find me the research, and Alexa would deliver them the research. So give them a pricey of it, email it to their inbox. Boom, done. Now that works. I mean, that's the only decent use case I've heard for Alexa in a professional capacity for one of these fancy things, but you can make it work within limited parameters. Sorry. I want to bring this back to the article and still talk about AI in terms of the article that we're here to discuss, because what I'm concerned about and what I'm thinking about bringing in the topic again, also of degrowth is that we're already seeing in the journalism industry that AI is already beginning to replace people. It's going to replace a lot of people in the sort of dreary world of answering the phone and the sort of bureaucratic world and uh, many, many lower level jobs. And some, I think it's going to have a dramatic impact on 
how much office space do we need? It's going to be not just people working at home. It's going to be the declining number of actual jobs in offices is going to significantly change because of AI. I don't know that it will change a lot of jobs in service industries like restaurants or construction industries and that, but I can see it having a big impact in many, many jobs. And does this change the whole economic equation that you were talking about earlier, Dan, where historically, you know, if you look at the physicist economist Robert Ayers, who's basically said all money, all economics is a transformation of energy, that basically our world runs on the economics of turning energy into stuff. And does this, do you see, uh, have a vision since we've been talking about AI of how it's actually going to affect uh, our consumption of um, stuff. Just so trying you, to relate everything we've been talking about to our purpose no, for being here. Yeah, yeah, well, you're absolutely right. Like there is. So if you consider how uh, capital needs frontiers, new frontiers to enable it, it needs to be put to work. It needs to grow. It needs places to go. So the digital space, so you follow the .com, first.com, web two, web three, those are all new frontiers. So it went from the, the interconnected desktop computers to the phone, the computer in your hand through your phone, through to the, the busted flush of Web3, where it was NFTs and cryptocurrency. Like AI is the replacement for the, the, the hype that collapsed after crypto died on a mass scale. And it is going to have a massive impact. So the people who are fueling the AI boom, like it's a lost leader at the moment. But they're the guys who hold all the money, who used to be invested in, who would have been invested in fossil fuels, like or whatever the 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 highest growth uh, frontier was. They've invested in AI. So what it's likely to result in is wage depression in the sectors that you described and a lower quality of service as we endure the enshittification of. And that's Corey Doctorow's great uh, word. Corey um, Doctorow's great word. Yeah, he's a yeah. magnificent writer. Uh, yeah, as we endure these, the 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 decline of the services, be they like state capacity, local services, private sector, customer support, like they they start off as useful tools. But if you look at the case of uh, supermarket checkouts, self checkout, by and large, it's not actually cheaper to run supermarket checkouts. We end up with a shittier service, more stressed staff, a, a similar bill for the, the the supermarket itself, but fewer staff to deal with. So there is a, a greater degree of control. And I'm being designed to... by the wrong people. I mean, they're being designed, oh, you know, not up. our interests. Whether I'm not have no idea what role AI will play in in, in affecting any of the things we we care about. It's obviously going to play a role of some sort, but it, it's not coming from a from a, a place that really respects, you know, us or the environment, it's a tool of capital, isn't it? As you say, exactly as you're saying, Dan. But but nevertheless, you know, like many things, does seem potentially if we had the I don't know how accessible it is for DIYers or sort of low cost, you know, people trying to make use of it, but you'd think it would apply to many of the problems that we are struggling with, you know, identifying in retrofit, for example, you know, identifying uh, buildings rather than sort of, you know, uh, building surveys, you know, can we take shortcuts using, um, you know, imagery and AI? There's lots of uses to which it could be put. 
machine learning? I mean, you, we've talked about it all, but will that happen? You know, well, it, I, it, I, bullshitting. <laughs> I'm tired. I wanted to ask. I wanted to ask Lloyd a question. Did I just wonder? Did I detect a more hopeful kind of vision in what you in, in the question you asked when you pushed that 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 AI would could if if deployed rightly could I, I don't know I mean you, you talked about it you talked about it you know t- taking all these various jobs and, and things like that but is there a is there a hopeful flip side to that coin where if we organize ourselves well we could actually use it in a, in a in a way that could 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 liberate us a little bit in the kind of Keynesian sense where we're not where we don't need to necessarily do you know the five day a week job where maybe we can maybe we can have a bit more time and in and 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 then that would probably free us from our kind of consumer driven lifestyles a little bit as well well if you read jason hickel's book less is more his recent book on degrowth and you think about the kind of lifestyle that we're going to have if there are fewer jobs around he and also the australian philosopher samuel alexander all talking about well what are we all going to do uh if there are fewer jobs around and they're both talking about that we might well have happier lives where we need less money because we're not going and buying the fancy foods but we're growing them ourselves in our backyard or in our allotment yeah. nearby uh that we're making more stuff ourselves like my daughter upstairs has a fabulous sewing room and is making all her own clothes and the clothes for her kids because she happens to be on pregnancy leave and uh, has the time to do these. But, you know, that we're ultimately degrowth for us to do any kind of degrowth that isn't a recession, that isn't a depression. We have to somehow make it positive where we're doing things that are useful with our time. And maybe we're switching out of that globalized economy where our clothing is made in Bangladesh by slaves and getting back to where we're making it ourselves and where our food is like not, our strawberries aren't grown in California, but are grown in our backyard. So yes, I'm thinking, I'm trying to think of a positive spin on AI is going to take all our jobs. I said, well, maybe that's not so terrible if we structure it right. Is this far-fetched? But that's said by Lloyd, who's exploiting his barefoot and pregnant daughter upstairs. (laughs) (laughs) I feel I've come to the wrong meeting in the sense I kind of like I'm 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 optimistic and positive about stuff generally, but I'm not optimistic and positive about the easy transition that we often think is possible. I just don't think we have those options anymore. Not in our countries. I, I think the idea that we'll be able to well, first of all, who is we anyway? But no question. I think degrowth is something. Who are we actually, I, Andy? Sorry, just to correct <laughs> you. Yeah, yeah. Jesus, I, Andy. I, 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 I think in a way, I was right about the English destroying their language. Yeah. I. It's hard. It's a hard thing to talk about because obviously, what I'm not saying is I believe in catastrophe and the world's going to end and dystopia and everything. But but there are a series of pathways that are coming out of our current predicament. And some of them are collapse type scenarios, and some of them are kind of like you know, slight uh, sort of maybe a sort of dip in 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 life, you know, lifestyle, well being sort of thing. And there's everywhere in between. And that, but where those which pathways we end up on, we can't. You know, we are speculating an awful lot in this meeting, aren't we? We're speculating a lot about the future. And what I guess we are actually trying to do is to just change, help 
change the way we think and the way people think so that the pathways are more the, the more likely to be the better pathways, the less collapse types, but it relies on the quality of our leadership. So, you know, populations don't have an awful lot of influence on the political elites right. running, do they? You know, running, running us, governing us. There's a, there's a serious delinkage there. Um, so in a way, again, it's coming back to this idea we're in a predicament and we have to respond to it and prepare for some unknown outcomes, many of which are extremely frightening. But, you know, one thing to pick up, but to, again, to stick on positivity here, uh, when you look at, for instance, look at the heat pump. Take the heat pump as a technological innovation that has completely changed our thinking about what we have to do to decarbonize. That before everything was, you're going to have to tear every house apart and insulate it to death and do uh, deep retrofits mm. on everything. And then we suddenly realize we don't. Look at the e-bike. The e-bike on its own has according to an article I, I, I read yesterday, done more to reduce uh, oil consumption and energy consumption than any other device, much more than electric cars, any that like because there are 280 million of them now around the world. So these changes would like tomorrow morning, I have an article coming out where I'm dissecting a uh, direct air capture uh, investment by the American government, $600 million of doing direct air capture. And they're doing it with this technological process that I started reading where they're taking calcium carbonate and they're putting it in an electric kiln. And I said, holy shit, they're making fucking cement. That their whole process is to make cement, capture the CO2 from making the cement because it's electric, and then they take the calcium oxide, which is the next step in cement, and hydrating it. And basically, like any cement or concrete, it reabsorbs CO2, but it doesn't in concrete because it because the cement is mixed with the concrete and it's in a building. They're just making it. They're letting it harden, and then they're grinding it up to five fine powder and letting it out to absorb the CO2. And then they're taking it all back and they're putting it back in their kiln. And this has got a $600 million investment from the American government. So I did the math on it and sat down and said, okay, I feel guilty about driving my Subaru 250 kilometers to my car cottage. And so I'm going to buy offsets from this company. So my car has 50, makes 50 kilograms of carbon dioxide going to the cottage. What do they have to go through to do this process? So I calculated how much calcium carbonate do I need to uh, generate enough CO2 to be offset? And it's 116 kilos, like four giant bags of cement, and then how much energy does it take to convert that calcium carbonate to calcium oxide? And it takes it takes 57 kilowatts of electricity to do it. And then what happens if I take 57 kilowatts of uh, kilowatt hours of electricity and put in an electric car? Well, what happens is I can go 50 kilometers further. I can drive to the Algonquin Park, this big park north of our cottage. I can go further. The government's spending $600 million to build this stupid plant. And if they took the $600 million and they just bought 20,000 electric cars and gave them to people, yeah. it, would, uh, it would save more carbon wrong, right now. They're investing yes. in the wrong thing. But my point, my the way I have come to think is we've always had 
the technology we need to do what we need to do. I mean, heat pumps were invented in what, 1855? Yes. You know, now, so having the technology and deploying it are two very different things. The thing about direct air capture and all that jazz is it looks great and it absolutely fits into current ways of thinking that, you know, you can be seen to be putting a big expensive machine to suck out the air. It's not doing very much. It won't scale, you know, nu uh, nuclear power, electricity too cheap to meter. Has that ever happened? No, you know. So it it sounds good. It works with a PR machine, but we've always had the technology to deploy it. So the problem is why we're we not deploying it, whatever that technology happens to be, which is so that kind of that, that's why I, I hear people talking about any one particular technology. And yes, it's great, but we're still using globally 80 percent fossil fuels. But you've got to pay them off, haven't you? That's the racket. Nice environment you got there. Shame well, if something need, was yeah, to happen need, to it. We need, the, we need the capital to build out the infrastructure to replace it. I, I mean, it sounds great to say pay them off, but they're not exactly, you know, not greedy. <laughs> I mean, I just, I don't think it's, there may be some paying off involved. Anyway, we're going full circle, aren't we, to sort of, you know, what, where do you act and how do you make meaning out of your day-to-day -day life in trying to sort of progress these agendas? What can you do? I think my my main thinking now is about uh, uh, not adapting, but uh, Alex Stefan. I don't know if any of you follow Alex Stefan's Professor Alex Stefan. The sort of ruggedization agenda. So yes, right. of course we're busy doing what we you know uh, everything we do is trying to sort of reduce, increase efficiency, reduce use, all the things in the article. I'm trying to do that, but increasingly. I'm in my own mind preparing and, and that's why I'm turning my garden into a forest garden. I'm a lazy gardener. I want to have a whole bunch of trees growing loads of nuts. And the reason I'm doing it is because it keeps me sane doing gardening or basic gardening like that. But it's also I, know. So, it, so I am prepared. Yeah, all right, fair enough, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> but I am preparing you for can't, yeah, you can't spell and uh, or <laughs> go on, go on. Yeah, yeah. No. I want I want to leave a garden to my children will inherit the house, and I'd rather it had a you know a garden with productive um, you know, nut trees and another sort of long-term uh, food supply in there. And that's not saying it's gonna work or produce enough for them to survive on, but it's part of the thinking about ruggedizing how we live, food, particularly food, um, but also things working properly. You know, I don't see a future where MVHR unit fans going are easily repaired. You know, in my old age, I'm 57 now, but, you know, 20 years time maybe, and the MVHR fan goes. I imagine there's going to be supply problems or the control unit's gone. You can't get the chips anymore. And so increasingly wanting to do things in a much simpler manner and we're doing work abroad where this is already you know you've got power cuts that last for hours you know which is why we're although we we, we sort of initially thought oh passive house in tanzania that's interesting isn't it but once you start looking at the socio-economic kind of the real practical constraints there even as their standard of living in some areas is improving with increased use of fossil fuels there is still you know, the supply chains aren't there and the the sort of technology understanding isn't there. And I think it will increasingly be similar here in the future. So I don't quite know what to make of that because we've been very passionate about things like Passive House. They make certainly really great buildings. But if you're looking 20, 30 years ahead and thinking, can we repair some of this equipment? Or, what do you think about it? You've been engaging this thinking, Jeff, haven't you, a bit? Yeah, I think, I think the more... Uh, common the sta standards like this become 
the easier it will be. You know, you're you're talking about with technologies like MBHR in the UK, for instance, it's still pretty marginal technology. So, you know, if we can keep up, keep the whole system going, assuming we're not all kind of, uh, you know, scrambling around fighting over rat meat, um, and, you know, then I don't see why that product should be any less likely to to be hard to service than, it, than any other. And if it becomes mainstream. If it becomes mainstream, yes. Yeah, and it is, you know, it, it, it's starting to head that way in Ireland, for sure, and in, in, in large parts of Europe, it's becoming mainstream, you know. It would be the same with heat pumps. I mean, going back to the rollout of heat pumps, you know, we haven't started doing that, and the potential, as you say, Lloyd, the potential for decarbonisation at speed and scale is there with heat pumps, but we need to do it. It needs to be deployed, and we haven't got enough people. A uh, question of um, building up a kind of industry where heat pumps can be, you know, installed, costs come down, they can be repaired when needed, you know, every 17 years they need to be renewed and presumably non-standard, you know, changes in, in, in components means they'll probably have to be taken out and new ones put in. So I guess once it is mainstreamed, then it'll become like you go to the local village mechanic and he knows how to repair your heat pump sort of thing. I guess. Yeah, it's one, I know of de- uh, one developer who um, who... Uh, was one of the reasons why he wouldn't put heat pumps in in the past because of, because there were two um, because he was a well a seasoned developer and uh, he was even in, even in the case of the gas boilers that he puts in his buildings um, it's actually the the, the, the building uh, I'm in now uh, or the developer Michael Cosgrave who uh, built the apartment building and this whole development that, that I live in he he was he shopped around until he found a, a boiler supplier where. Uh, if the circuit board went on it, he could get another board for like a hundred quid or less, or something like that, you know. Um, and um, look for a supplier who had a three three sixty five day a year service in terms of of you know that kind of stuff oh. is is really important. But um, yeah, the more successful these technologies become, the less of an issue that should become, you know. If I can go back to that concept of frugality that came out of India, that one of the aspects besides the ones we mentioned was serviceability, that because the roads were bad and because uh, that basically there were people in every town, that the things were designed to be simple enough that there could be service people who could fix anything there with you know tape and wire and whatever they had. Uh, and that was a key part of the whole concept of frugality uh, as it was developed in India. And we're going to have to need, we're going to need that. I mean, Ben Adam Smith is in a passive house. Uh, he's, uh, you would think the companies would be falling over each other to make sure he's happy. And his HRV hasn't worked for two years. And so, you know. But the, 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 the thing about the India thing is they need it to be like that now, whereas we know, or, or, there's very good arguments that we'll need it to be like that in the future, but we're not going to do anything about it. We see we seem to have this problem of acting in advance of the problem, right? And it seems to be baked into human nature and yeah, business models to not do that. I mean, the early adopters, the pioneers and the early adopters, always have this terrible tension with frustration with the mainstream. You know, in many ways, it's not pleasurable being a pioneer or an early adopter because you've got to wait thirty years before you know well, it right. may or may not take off. You you find yourself wailing like Cassandra, and uh, you're not put to death, but you'll die before the solution's deployed. And this yeah. is increasingly why I keep trying to frame all of the work that we're doing here in terms of like looking at solutions. That word, Andy, 
uh, and seeing how you can apply the things that exist within them in a practical way around you right now, bottom-up insurgency. And I think whilst this this flies in the face of the systemic stuff that I was talking about, if you look at look at something like Shock Doctrine, like Naomi Klein's book, another of your compatriots now, Lloyd, yeah. she talks about in some of her older work and some of the more recent stuff about how the the right, if you like, or corporate America prepares for disaster. So when the disaster happens, whatever it did, whatever it might be, so it can be uh, the levees breaking in New Orleans or a war in Syria or Iraq or wherever, man, they've got all the legislation ready to go. They've got all the people they can mobilize. They've got the plans for the action. Like They know what they want to do to, to enable them to exploit the situation for all it is worth. Now we to be we need to be so yeah. we being in our privileged Western European and North American position, we need to be inculcating insurgency in terms of things like energy management and building design. We need to be fighting them on their own terms, preparing the stuff so when disaster hits, we have the actual answers and they're not that dear. And I think the carbon light building standard is an essential component of a thing like that, particularly for the UK having something that is demonstrably successful, that is no more expensive than the alternative, that can be used in a way, can be applied in a way that meets people's budgets, so your early adopters, in a way that doesn't rinse them out, but builds up capacity within the system to enable the economies of scale to develop, to enable it to become more accessible to more people. And I think insurgency on that level works. You can access it all at different points. So to your point earlier about how you need systemic change and you need individual change, that damn straight you do. Like we ain't going to get systemic change. So what we're going to do instead? We've got to fight from the ground up because there's fuck all else to do. Or just turn your eating up. Fuck it. Who cares? Have another beer. Yeah. Nice. Keep your fridge open. Right. So I think we better wrap up soon. So Lloyd, anything you want to touch on? Uh, I think this is definitely going to be a two-parter. Um, I cannot. I'm just looking back at the article that started with and go back to the point number seven, which was the last one. And I just want, I just want Lenny to say a few words in response to your concept about connecting with the forest. Going back to the article and saying we started talking about this, and. What I liked about that connecting with the forest concept as a way is that it's a really positive ending to your article and like a positive thing uh, to talk about here that we're not saying, and I don't want to ever say that, you know, we're not, we shouldn't be building with wood because I think that we should be building with wood. Absolutely. Uh, again, to quote, to quote Mr. Atkins, the expert, you know, if we're not growing it, we're mining it. So, you ended with this positive solution, connect with the forest. And can you just describe a little bit more what you meant by that? Yeah, I'll try to. I think that, I think that, I suppose my my own background straddled in, in terms of being a writer and a journalist um, who, who covers the kind of environmental issues, straddled two worlds. One was the built environment and the other was was covering biodiversity and nature and writing about the natural world. And I find that even though these are both kind of sub 
sub areas of the wider environmental movement they don't really talk to each other that much they're kind of at opposite ends of the environmental um, spectrum and when i started to hear more and more people in the built environment sector talk talk about timber and carbon storage and embodied carbon it was in a very mechanistic kind of way it was in a very reductive kind of way and i was thinking about how you know i think that a lot of our a lot of, a lot of the reason that we treat the natural world the way we do is because we have this very mechanistic view where we have had this very mechanistic mechanistic view of the natural world particularly in the western world in the last couple hundred years where we see it as a resource or as jeremy lent the writer would say as a machine to be exploited to be used and i kind of felt that you know some of the discussion around embodied carbon and timber was purely seeing trees or wood as a machine and it, and it was kind of just even though it was with the attention of intention of an environmental good at the end in terms of reducing our carbon emissions it was ultimately viewing it as a machine for for human utility it was seeing it was sort of another way humans could use forests not not just for building but also for reducing our warming of the planet so that we could make the, 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 the our, our biosphere more livable it, it was sort of it was just another form uh, a utilitarian way of looking at forests so when i kind of ended the article or we ended the article by encouraging people to connect with the forest it was trying to maybe encourage people who work with timber who build with timber who design buildings with timber to actually get out and see you know to think about how forests work ecologically what they are like that they are living systems you know even plantation forests where a lot of our timber comes from are still living systems and to try to build some sort of connection with with the land that's providing the building material in the hopes that it might deepen you know our understanding of uh, of of how we should use it and, and how and how we approach it and and to use andy's word to to to, to maybe treat it with more respect um I talked to someone recently who's a, a structural engineer who said that, um, you know, the more we used bio-based materials um, to reduce the carbon footprint of the built environment, the more we need to think of construction as a form of agriculture. And I thought that was really interesting because it kind of implied, it kind of implied maybe a stronger connection with with the land that provides us with these materials and um, just in that in the use of that word lies working closer with the land being closer to it working with it more which was which was an interesting way to me of thinking about um construction materials because even though we talk about timber and you know we to talk about other material materials we talk about straw we talk about hemp bamboo all these different bio-based materials we could be using in the built environment but we don't really think of of construction as a, as, a, as a form of agriculture but maybe think, maybe we'll have to move that way no, it sounds great i think we have to be careful about talking about connecting with these things because my my stupid schoolboy brain immediately starts thinking about you literally telling people to go and hug a tree basically you know um and that's you should try it you should try it sometime. yeah it is good tugging <laughs> trees yeah <laughs> especially after a few pints and then... <laughs> I mean, what I would say, I think Lenny is very um, articulate about that. It's, it's lovely. Um, what what struck me when you were saying that was I have I, I've had a long relationship with different forests of different sorts, and uh, I'm very aware of the different um, emotional states I'm in when I'm in a different forest. So if I go into a, an old forest, I go and visit my brother down in Cornwall, and I go into an old mossy 
sort of go to Dartmoor or something. Um, you know, I, I do feel that sense of awe and, and I really don't want anything to happen to that forest at all. You know, it, it's a sort of sacred place. If I go, as I used to when I was at Hook Park College, I go into the uh, softwood plantations, the the, 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 the um, spruce sick spruce stands. I'm very clearly seeing this as a standing resource of lumber ready for my project. And I go in and I, I'm looking for the straightest pole. I'm quite happy to get a chainsaw out, hack it down, drag it out the forest. And it, I really don't respect that, that forest very much. It really is just a resource to get the timber I, I want. This continuous forestry, you know, which is a sort of hybrid between the two, I I do feel more because Hook Park again had all this mixture of forests, and we were wandering around quite often, either having built a shack in the woods to go and sort of save on some rent, or go and get some timber. So occasionally fall down a bank in the dark and stand up, and there's a load of deer there, you know. Um, but the continuous forestry, I was more ambivalent about damaging that. So the the, the 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 software plantations, I could take what I want, and I felt quite disrespectful. But my most interesting relationship is with my garden now, which I've been planting various nut trees, and you know, it's quite it's becoming a little ecosystem in itself, and that regenerating something that is incredibly powerful. Absolutely love it. I, I'm more interested in that now than I am in building, to be honest with you. Especially going having visited some of the food forests. Uh, that Martin Crawford has been creating down in Devon, just to see an ecosystem being created from scratch and then taking on more than the sum of its parts is really amazing. That is probably the most powerful relationship I have with with trees at the moment. I really hope that we aren't revisiting this conversation in like five years' time uh, where uh, Andy Simmons has been arboreally me-tooed by a section of forest <laughs> we're, we're viewing this like jimmy havel jimmy was... havel hugging the nolan sisters <laughs> i was just thinking of the jerry yeah i was thinking of the i couldn't couldn't stop thinking of the jerry springer episode where a guy married a horse for some reason <laughs> i'll just disappear i won't you know, you won't know where i've gone oh, saying we should be building more with horses <laughs> skinny horses you you just you have to spread that horse as thinly as possible yeah oh, lloyd will take yeah, his mud where he you can, can see lloyd now. desperately trying to wrap it up take it back to the hospital and wrap up and we, we really haven't been easy for him this this uh, session no it hasn't <laughs> right how would you like to wrap up lloyd I well i we thought could... we just did with and uh, with uh <laughs> 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 I think we did. Yeah, it's over. He's got. That's why I asked that question for about point seven, and we got that lovely, lovely speech from from Lenny there about connecting with the forest, which I think is a wonderful place to actually end. That we know we mustn't when we're building with all of this material, this mass timber. It's very much like the people who become vegetarians because they go and spend a day in a slaughterhouse and say, I could never eat meat again. We don't think about where stuff comes from. And it is coming from a forest. And the forest can be clear cut and the forest can be dealt with properly. Uh, connecting with the forest is, I think, a, a wonderful, wonderful point that everybody who's working with wood actually should. About 10 years ago, they were doing forestry behind my cabin in the woods, and it was all being FSC certified forestry. And I spent I spent a day with them walking how they marked a tree that has to be saved 50 feet around this because of the birds. We can't do this. We can't do that really carefully. And I came away so impressed that 
ever since. If I wasn't ever going to do anything without it being FSC certified because of that. And I think everybody in this industry should have that kind of experience and go out and connect with the forest. And they may well then on their next project decide that maybe I should use a little bit less of the stuff and think about this. I think that's a great, that was lovely, Lloyd. Lovely. Um, all right. Well, thank you for joining us, uh, folks, like around the virtual table. Thank you so much for your time. That's been, I mean, I've certainly enjoyed myself. That's been really interesting. A lot of fun. We should do this again. Yeah. Yeah. For us is next time. Definitely. <laughs> well, they uh, used to do plaster and lath. They always added horsehair to it because it's what held held it together. Yeah. <laughs> there is a there is a way to do it. We'll get John Butler on the calcs. Um, <laughs> all right, all right then. Um, all right, well, everyone at home, thank you so much for joining us. All the usual things: join ACAN, join the AECB, join the IGBC. For all the ladies there, join. Check out her own space. If you get something out of this, you probably know someone else who will as well. So please share it with them. If you could review, like, presumably you probably subscribed already. Five stars, because that's what the algorithm needs. Check out Passive House Plus. Advertise if you can. You guys got anything to plug? You've got your article coming out in the A forthcoming issue. I don't know if it's this one, Jeff, but yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. And check out the the carbonite retrofit standards as well, um, and the new build standard too. It's it's, it's they're 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 fantastic and and important and kind of pragmatic, you know. Thanks, yeah. thanks, Jeff. I would also actually we've just put up a load of um very interesting talks and workshops on the ACB YouTube channel. Uh, which touches on some of these issues, actually. So I'd recommend people go and visit that. Dead on. All right. I'll make and sure can I just, it. since we're all pitching everybody else's stuff, can I go in and make a little pitch for my Carbon Upfront Substack, <laughs> uh, where you can read about a lot of this stuff as well? Lloyd, we nearly yeah. always, well, we always plug you if we remember to do so, but you are always there in the show notes. Oh, good. That's okay, then I thought. then you can edit me out here. No, okay. no, no. I think uh, yeah, be bold, Lenny. Where are you appearing next? Um, where am I appearing next? Um, nothing. No, nothing. Nothing major coming up. Yeah, nowhere. If anyone wants to give me any 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 gigs, you know, get in touch. <laughs> 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 or just send, or just put some money in my bank account. You know, we can put that in the show notes too. That'd be great. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, send me the link. I'll put it in there. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for joining us. Cheers. And don't leave. Thanks. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.